According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes to the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. I think we've covered uh, verse 1 a couple weeks back, and uh, we're ready now for verses 2 and following. In fact, we'll see if we can get through 2 through 5 in, uh, in a single message. Good luck with that. But it is, um, as it is Communion Sunday, and, and uh, sometimes we run out of time, and sometimes we want to take longer, but we can't, because verse 5 says we can't. It says, uh, of these things uh, we cannot now speak in detail. And so the author of Hebrews himself runs out of time when he wants to stop and slow down and go into more detail related to the tabernacle, which we're going to look at here today. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father in his faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing and benefit that is ours today. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to bless our time of study, to open the eyes of our understanding, and to allow for this message to go forth as you've designed it, Father. We call upon your faithfulness that the the word today would not be impaired by any human limitations or weaknesses on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers. Father, allow for your Holy Spirit to uh, be powerful, Father, and to lead us into the truth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so looking at the, uh, the tabernacle. You ever done a study on the tabernacle before? Formal, informal? Has it been a while? It's, uh, it's, it's a fun study. And it's a fun study to go through every once in a while. Uh, of course, Leviticus is always crushing. Uh, so I recommend Hebrews. <laughs> All right. Um, but to go through these things, you get, the, you get the snapshot, you get the short version, then go back to Leviticus and get the longer version. You get you know, Exodus and Numbers. But as we look at it here, there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one or the first one, in which were the lampstand and the, ta- and the table and the sacred bread. This is according to, or this is called the holy place. Uh, beside the second, the veil, uh, there was a tabernacle which was prepared, the Holy of Holies. Uh, Verse 4, having a golden altar of incense and the altar of the covenant, which all, starting to lose sight here, in which all the, the, uh, this is not good, the golden uh, jar, which the, See? (laughs) All right. So this is what we're looking at. We're looking at the covenant. I did take two, uh, et cetera, and I'm hoping to keep this migraine away so I can read what I'm reading. And sometimes the worst part is just trying to see the verses. So I do better if I'm just talking about it. But this is what we're looking at. All right. So we have the tabernacle, and this is what had been prepared. And he's presenting it as if his readers already understand it. He's actually presenting it in a very loose fashion to the point that uh, his readers already know everything he's, he's talking about here, that they're fully aware of everything he's telling them. And he's very quickly running them through in a brief fashion just so that he can get to really what is the main point. And the main point comes in verses 6 and following because he wants to show what was 
versus the, the tremendous benefit of what we have now and the glories we have in the church age, whereby in the body of Christ we have so many things available to us now that, uh, that we should give him the praise and the glory for. All right, so this is what we're looking at. Let me get past this. We talked about, uh, in verse 1, we talked about the, uh, the issues here. Regulations of divine worship. Regulations of divine worship. And recognize that what we're talking about, not legalism. We're not talking about a phony legalism whereby uh, don't, don't li- allow the thing of regulations to scare you because we live in a, in a culture that we live in where we have government regulations everywhere. All right? Regulations are good when they are standards of righteousness. And that's what we have here, the, the dikaiomata, the, the standards of righteousness. And the fact that if we are believer priests, we just can't do what we want to do. We can't just assume that God's going to be pleased with everything we do because we're doing it. They've got to be righteous, as Cain and Abel illustrate. His uh, sacrifice was not righteous, but Abel's was righteous, and that's the difference. And so we have regulations of divine worship, that we are sinners. And how can sinners stand before the holiness of God? Well, by God's grace, we can. And this is the whole point of what we're looking at here. And so in, uh, in chapter 9 and verse 1, we, we dealt with that. Let me get past that and get now to verse 2. There was a tabernacle prepared. Keep in mind the idea of preparation and how important this is. Preparation was extensive and critical for the regulations of divine worship. Preparation. They didn't just build any old tabernacle willy-nilly. They didn't just build something they thought would look good. They were building something that already existed before the foundation of the world. They're building a heavenly reality in which the earthly tabernacle is, is simply a replica, that the real tabernacle is the one made without hands, that God has a holy temple in the heavenly places, and when he gave Moses the tabernacle, it was simply a replica of the real tabernacle. And we have both in verse 2 and in verse 6 this issue of preparation. You see it there in verse 2? There was a tabernacle prepared. And in verse 6, these things have been prepared. And in fact, it's really a, it's a verb tense there where it's, it's a perfect tense. These things having been prepared, now they're ready to worship. Without the right preparation, they, they can't have the right worship. And so these things take care. Do you ever stop to wonder why there's so many chapters in Exodus that deal with this? Why is it that we have chapter after chapter after chapter and it becomes quite redundant, actually, when you read your way through? And so there's details on the high priest and his garments. There's details on each of the items of the furniture. And there's details on every last step of the tabernacle. And then when it's all finished, you think, okay, that's good enough. That took us, you know, six chapters, seven chapters. Well, then it actually, all of it gets repeated all over again because then we have the workmen that are designed to do the work. And so all of the steps along the way with uh, the garments and the furniture and, the, and the, uh, all the, the craftsmanship that took place, when they finally build it, all the detail gets presented a second time. And so God is very redundant in giving us the tabernacle doctrine twice as he gives it in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the scriptures. All right. And so preparation is extensive. And we recognize the same thing in our priesthood as well. That preparation is extensive. If we're going to be pastors, if we're going to be Bible teachers, that we have to prepare, we have to grow, we have to make sure that we're equipped to, uh, to do the work that he's called for us to do. It becomes critical in this way. 
Try to relax, though, if there's parts of this chapter that bother you. The tabernacle description in, in these verses is a free expression illustration. In other words, it's off the top of his head. It's rather loose in how he's expressing things. It is a free expression illustration. It is not a strict technical quotation from the Old Testament. In fact, uh, he puts these things in a different order in some respects than you're going to get in, in uh, Leviticus or in Exodus. And in some cases, he actually is in error. He's actually, ooh, your Bible's not in error. But the speaker is not being precise. And you shouldn't hold him to that. And, and if he talks about the, uh, the altar of incense being inside the veil instead of outside the veil, relax about that. It's not a problem, okay? Because he's speaking in a general way off the top of his head very loosely with respect to the tabernacle. So you'll see more illustrations of this as well as we work our way through these verses. The tabernacle description in these verses is a free expression illustration. It is not a strict textual quotation from the Old Testament. And so when he talks about the holy place, all right, the Hagia, holy place, or in the Hebrew, the Kodesh, it uh, is said here to be the first or the outer tabernacle. And I don't have a problem with that, but he's using this expression in a way that the Old Testament never does. The Old Testament does not call that holy place the first tabernacle. In fact, the term tabernacle applies to the whole structure the tent, the courtyard leading into it, the gate, even before you get to the, to the inner court. And we understand, I'll show you, there's a diagram here. We're going to see a short little two-minute video that shows it. It's in a loose fashion, and we're relaxed about it. We're not worried about it. But when it's said it's the first tabernacle, or that it's the outer tabernacle, that is a usage that's not found in the Old Testament. Next, let me back up. I said I was going to show you. We can show you. So this is what we're looking at, and I'll have a little video clip for you here in a moment as we look at this. But essentially, this is what we're looking at, and it starts on the east, so the the angle is a little awkward there. But you're coming in from the east, and the first thing you get to is the is the bronze altar, right? You get to the the brazen altar, and that's where that's as far. If you're not a priest, that's as far as you can get. You get as far as that bronze altar, and then the priests are going to take it from there. And you're going to show up, you're going to bring your goat, you're going to bring your, your uh, bull, your offering, and you're going to kill it. The priest is there to help, the priest is there once you kill it, but before you kill it, you're going to identify with that animal. You're going to put your hand on its head, you're going to identify with that animal, and you're going to kill that animal. You're going to do it. This animal's taking your place, all right? But you're going to kill the animal. And then once you do, then the Levites, the priests, are going to take over from there. Okay? And they're going to have procedures they're going to follow for where to put the blood and what to do with the blood and what happens with the rest of the animal and what, where do the different parts go depending on the offering that's, that's done there. <clears throat> then there's a brazen, uh, and then you're done if you're, not, if you're not Levitical. If you're not a priest, you've finished your work. You can then go back out and you're done. Okay? But the Levites and the priests, they've got more work to do. So they're going to go past in the brazen altar. <clears throat> They're going to take some of that blood into the, the tabernacle itself, but before they do, they have to pass the brazen laver. And before they can go into the, into the tabernacle itself, the main tent, before they can go into the holy place, they first of all have to be cleansed. They have to go to the laver, the brazen laver, whereby they can wash their hands and their feet. They can have the washing that prepares them for their priestly duty. 
And uh, that's represented there at the brazen labor. Then they can go into the tent itself, all right? Then they can get to the holy place. All right, so let me play this for you. Here we go. It worked this morning. I pray that it works again. The Tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8 through 9, God spoke to Moses, saying, Make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell in the midst of them, according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its equipment, and so you will do. This portable temple was built in the wilderness by the Israelites, circa 1450 B.C., after they were freed from Egyptian slavery. Moses was given specific instructions regarding the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus 26. The tent itself sat within a curtained enclosure that was supported by pillars. This courtyard was about a quarter of the size of an American football field. Several slaughtering tables stood within the court of the tabernacle, along with the bronze laver and the bronze altar. The tabernacle itself was a rectangular-shaped structure. Its roof consisted of multiple layers of animal skins and linens. An outer covering of takash skin, which may have been porpoise, beaver, or a type of leather. A covering of ram skin dyed red. A curtain of goat's hair. And finally, a curtain of fine linen. The interior of the tabernacle was divided into two sections that housed a number of sacred objects. The first section, the holy place, contained the table of showbread the lampstand, and the altar of incense. Beyond a veil lay the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was the first temple dedicated to God and the first resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. It served as a place of worship and sacrifices during the Israelites' 40 years in the desert and their subsequent conquest of the land of Canaan. This transportable house of worship was eventually replaced by a more permanent structure, King Solomon's Temple. All right. So this is what we're looking at. And this, uh, I enjoyed this. I also enjoyed the fact that uh, Logos Software provided this part of their software, and um, they're honest enough about it that if they uh, if they have a puzzle related to the tachash, uh, let's just leave it for what it is, and we can save the arguments about whether it's porpoise or whether it's uh, some other animal, uh, some intellectual honesty to recognize we don't know exactly what it is. I think um, uh, whether it's porpoise or dugong or some of the the idea is, though, if they were going through the desert, where do they find the porpoise? You know, where, where's, all the, where's all the porpoises in, uh, in the desert? Well, um, I think we'll just leave that as an open question at now, and we'll, we'll find it one of, these, one of these days. All right. And so this is what we're dealing with. And in fact, uh, as I said this morning, uh, it's a, uh, uh, the author here is in a hurry. And when he gets to verse 6, he says, but... Uh, of these things, we cannot uh, know, uh, uh, we cannot now speak in detail. So he's in a hurry. He's just giving it off the top of his head. He's refreshing their memory so that he can contrast them uh, with the, the access that we have now in Christ and the priesthood that we now in our Melchizedek, uh, our Melchizedek priesthood 
in Christ. And so it's really verses 6 and following that, that we'll see uh, the detail that are mentioned there. All right. First of all, the holy place is said to, convey, uh, to contain three things. The holy place is contained to contain three things. And you say, well, that's kind of weird. It's different than how we read it in Exodus. <clears throat> Starts with the lampstand, all right? And so it's mentioned here, um, again, Hebrews 9.2, uh, there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, the, uh, in which uh, were the lampstands. So there's the first thing that's mentioned is the lampstand in which were the uh, lampstand, and then the table. And then the third one is the sacred bread. And that comes across in kind of a strange way and kind of an awkward way. It appears to be three different things, which when you're going through in Exodus and you're going through Le- uh, Leviticus, they kind of get lumped together. The table is, com- is combined with the bread. And why is the author breaking it down between the table and the bread. Can't we just put them all in together in the same item? Why is he just giving it across like this? We would start with the lampstand. So we got the, uh, the Greek word here for luknia, the, uh, the Hebrew word menorah, by the way. I'm not doing a lot with this. I'm just, in fact, just by coincidence, I'm just throwing it out there for your own edification and so forth. But do you ever wonder why the Jews have that particular lampstand in their art, in their, uh, and why was it called the menorah? Why do they call that, that, that thing the, the, the um, lampstand? Because that's the Hebrew word for lampstand. That's all it means, all right? So we can relax about the menorah. All it means is the Hebrew word for lampstand, okay? As far as that goes. So the lampstand, Exodus 25. Exodus 25. And reading here in uh, Exodus 25, verses 31 through 39. And just spot, right here in this chapter, it's in a little bit of a different order. And we're looking at verses 31 through 39, and if you just spot a few verses earlier, we have the table of showbread in verses 23 through 30. Why is it in that order? Why is, why is the lampstand coming after the table and the bread, because in Hebrews nine it's the the it's, it's in a different order. The lampstand comes first. All of that tells us we should relax about maybe some of the order that these things are in, particularly with the purpose that that the author has here for Hebrews nine. So uh, verse thirty one, then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its and its uh, shaft are to be made of, of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand from its one side, and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms, and one branch and bulb and flower, and the three cups shall be like almond blossoms in the, uh, again, I'm struggling with my reading here, in the uh, other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And so you have a central shaft and then going on the left and right on the uh, three on one side, three on the other side, the central one in the center becomes the seventh as, uh, as these things go. 
And um, verse 34, in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of of, uh, branches coming out of it, and the bulb uh, under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and the bulb under the third pair of uh, branches coming out of it, for the six branches coming out, uh, out of the lampstand. And so think about all these details and think about the, the beauty and the artistry that there's doctrine that's to be taught and then there's also just the beauty of it as he's designed it, that these are replicas of what's given in heaven as we understand it. Uh, verse 36, their bulbs and their branches shall be one piece with it. All of it uh, shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. And the actual weight of it is huge. The actual weight uh, um, you know, be 90 pounds, between 75 and 90 pounds of gold, given the price of gold today, it's just astronomical, uh, over a million dollars, uh, one point, you know, one and a quarter uh, of, of dollars, the price value of gold. Uh, so that's the rate there in verse uh, 39 that talks about the talent of pure gold. Uh, verse 37 says, Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the uh, space in, the, in front of it. Its snuffers and uh, their trays shall be of pure gold. So those are the, the implements as well for um, putting out the, the, the flame and uh, tending the, the wicks and the other uh, utensils that are involved in, in operating the, the, uh, the lampstand. So you have snuffers as well. Verse 39, it shall be made uh, from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern of, uh, for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. So when he had the pattern, when he had the, the information that was there, it was given to him so that it would match the reality of the heavenly temple. Moses didn't get to go to heaven and see what it was like, but he had the, pl- the pattern that was given so that when he gives the earthly replica, he has something that's uh, natural, that's a part of what is provided. All right. And so that's the, uh, what we have there in Exodus 25. We also have Exodus 37. Uh, I'll let you look that one up if you like in Exodus 37, verses 17 through 21. And then Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 3. And these, uh, these are specific. And there's warnings too that are coming as well with respect to this. Let me grab... Uh, Let me just give you a sample here from Exodus 37. You say, well, why is this redundant? Exodus 37 and 17. Now, he'd already been commanded how to do this. Now he have the, the, the actual description of what happened when Bezalel, when these uh, uh, builders were obeying the Lord. And so uh, Exodus 37, 17, then he made the lampstand of pure gold, he made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its bulbs, its flowers were of one piece within it. There were six branches according to its sides. And as you read through, it's very redundant and it's very much repetitive over what he was commanded to do in verse 25. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you don't like that. Maybe, uh, okay, I get it. Why he, you know, it's, it's enough that he told them how to do it. God felt that he was giving them, first of all, the instruction and then giving the, uh, the actual application when Israel obeyed and when we uh, created all of the, the furnishings of the tabernacle. And so the story actually happens twice. 
Likewise, Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you a clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron uh, shall keep it in order for everything uh, to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the uh, pure gold lampstand even before the Lord continually. Continually. And daily this was a thing. They had to, in fact, every morning they had to, to, uh, to uh, prepare to uh, re- resolve the, uh, the light to make sure that, uh, that the, um, what do you call that? The, the, um, the wicks. Thank you. And, and so, you know, when it's time to, to, to clear it and to, to, uh, to, I'm not, I'm forgetting my words this morning, but you understand. That's what we're looking at. All right. Then there's the table, the trapeza or the shulchan. And I don't know if there's anything particularly impressive of the, the Greek word or the Hebrew word. It just means a table. Okay. And everybody's got a table. Uh, but this is a particular table whereby this is where the bread is displayed. And they bring it and, and, they, and they present it for the week. And then every, uh, every Saturday they uh, take what, and, and, uh, and the priests are going to be eating it because they're going to get a brand new week's worth of bread that are going to be put there uh, as it's described. So Exodus 25, 23 through 29. 23 through 39. <clears throat> Exodus 25, 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide and one half um, and one and a half cubits high. And so it's really not as big a table as you would think. In fact, I'm not sure that the size of our communion table is, is actually too large compared to the size of the uh, the table that's in the tabernacle. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make uh, for it a rim of handbreadth around it and shall make uh, a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it and put rings on the four corners which are on its four feet. The, uh, the rings shall be closed to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold so that uh, uh, with them the table may be carried. Remember, this was designed to be portable, uh, designed to be take with them as they travel in the wilderness. And everywhere they went, this was designed to go with them. And then when they arrived to their next stop, they were going to set it up and, and, uh, and build their camp around it. All right, and so it's described here. Likewise, uh, we'll save some time and not go to, to this. Now, just a word of warning, by the way. Uh, we have the acacia wood, and then we have the covering with gold, all right? And again and again, everything, every time you get to different understandings of this, you have applications, it's very common that uh, a commentary will then say, well, this clearly is a picture of Jesus Christ who was truly humanity and truly deity, that he was fully human and that he was also divine and he was also God. And so we have the fulfillment of this in Christ, that Jesus was true humanity, he was also true deity, and the, uh, the table here is supposed to paint that picture and so forth. The problem is, and while I understand that there's a tendency that we want to have that example that's made, 
The Bible itself is not laying that same example that we would, uh, that we would present. There's nothing in here that says that the, the acacia wood yeah, speaks of his humanity and the gold speaks of his deity. All right? And so while I can appreciate that, okay, I can see that as an illustration, it's useful for us so far as we want to use it as an illustration, but it really is our um, example. The Scripture itself is not making that equivalency. And so I think we have to have another, again, a degree of humility to, uh, to teach those things. Then we have the sacred bread. And really, so far as Exodus is concerned, it's really the same issue. It's the table and the bread on the table, all in the same context. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 30. (coughs) And so, um, I'm still in Exodus 25 here. Verse 29 says, You shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls uh, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the bread of the presence on the uh, table before uh, me at all times. So verse 30, really here in Exodus 25, that's the only verse there that even addresses the bread. The rest of it's uh, addressing the, uh, the table and uh, the dishes and the, and the bowls. Leviticus 24 has more information on this in verses 5 through 9. And you'll notice in Leviticus 24, it has the same order that we have in, in Hebrews 9, whereby we have the, the bread first, and then or the, uh, the uh, uh, lampstand first, and then the table after that. So really, they're in different order depending on whether you're reading in Exodus or whether you're reading in, in Leviticus, right? And so hopefully we can relax about uh, the author of Hebrews and choosing a different order than, uh, than we would have otherwise. All right. Again, this is the um, diagram here related to the table of showbread. Uh, gold dishes and bowls were set on the table for offering of the holy bread and the frankincense. And there were actually, uh, the, uh, the frankincense was provided there. They would actually have wine as they partook of the bread that uh, they would have to get fresh uh, loaves of bread every, every Sabbath, every Saturday. They would take the last weeks and take that out for the priests and the Levites to, to consume. And they, go, and they get another um, uh, one, uh, uh, tri- uh, one loaf for each of the Jewish uh, tribes. Made of acacia wood with pure gold overlay, three feet long, one and a half foot wide, two and a half feet high. And so I think that, I haven't measured what this table is over here, but I think our table is bigger than uh, the table they had in the uh, tabernacle. Twelve rolls, or ten loaves of showbread, two piles of six loaves each, set on pure gold plates on the table. Every Sabbath the priest would eat the week old bread, replacing it with fresh bread and a new supply of uh, frankincense from the people. So we have the order there. I forgot to click that one. Made of hammered gold, all one piece of each of the six branches, and on the stand itself were cups made to look like almond blossoms. Uh, these oil lamps burned uh, pure beaten olive oil every night and were trimmed every morning. There were seven identical lampstands made for the tabernacle, along with uh, tongs and trays for tending the lamps, also made of pure gold. 
And as this is presented, the author of Hebrews is, is very rapidly running his recipients through this material as if they're very familiar with it. It's part of the testimony we talked about in introducing the series of, of, uh, of the book that most of the recipients of this book are themselves Levitical priests, that they are some of those new believers in the church age that had crossed from being Old Testament believers into church age believers. And the warning and what the author is warning them of is actually abandoning New Testament truth and going back to an Old Testament theology, going back to identify with the Old Testament priesthood. And that's what they're being warned about is going back to an Old Testament reality instead of the blessings of the New Testament. All right, on to verse 3 then. Back to verse 3. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. All right. This has a couple of problems. And uh, if if we're going to insist on something highly technical, then then we're going to have problems. That's why we need to relax about it. These terms continue the author's free expression illustration. He is speaking broadly and briefly. He is speaking broadly and briefly. In fact, in verse 3, calling it a second veil is a problem. All right, because there's technically speaking, there's only one veil. There's only the, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy place and the holy of holies. That's technically, that's the veil. We have other terms as it relates to uh, the, uh, the gate or the doorway or so forth. There's other terms, for example, the very first gate to even get to the, uh, to the, to the uh, altar to bring the sacrifices. And, and uh, the Old Testament is pretty consistent in making different terms related to these things. They're all curtains, if you will. I mean, they're all hung and, and, and put on a thing. But as far as veil is concerned, that tends to limit only to the Holy of Holies. And so this use here in Hebrews 9.3 is, is a little unique with respect to that. Again, the author is speaking broadly and briefly so we can rejoice and relax about the technicalities. But it is the Holy of Holies. And so whereas the holy place is called the Hagia, here it is the Hagia Hagion. So holy versus the holiest of the holies, the most holy. It's like the Song of Songs. It's like the pinnacle. It is the greatest of all holinesses in the world would be the holies of holies, the Hagia Hagion, or in the Hebrew, the Kodesh or the Kodesh um, Hakadashim, as it's there. Here it's called the tabernacle in a usage that's not found in the holy place. So when it says in verse 3, behold, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, you see the, why some people don't like that? Calling the, the, the most holy place a tabernacle? As if it's a different tabernacle from the one that's in verse 2? Because there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, or the, the first one. But then he says behind the second veil there was a tabernacle. And so it, it seems like, wow, there's two tabernacles. The first one and the second one. And the author's calling both of them a tabernacle. Whereas, which is different than how the Old Testament ever expresses it, either in Exodus or in Leviticus or in Psalms or really anywhere in the Old Testament. So here the Holy of Holies is also called a tabernacle. And this is a usage that's not found in the Old Testament. 
As far as the Old Testament is concerned, there's only one tabernacle and it includes the courtyard out front. But we can relax about it. It doesn't bother us at all. Also, the veil is here called the second veil and a usage not found in the Old Testament. The veil here is called the second veil in a usage not found in the Old Testament. So sure, there was a curtain. There was a door outside of the, of the holy place. There was a door, and yes, they would open the door, they would go in, and they would close the door. And it was a curtain. And just as the veil was also a curtain, and in fact the gate was also a curtain. But when it comes to the actual description as a veil, that's different. Because the Holy of Holies is quite exclusive. It is a unique uh, it is a unique thing. And only the high priest, only one day a year, was allowed to go in there. Only, only one day a year, the Day of Atonement, only one day of year could the high priest go in there and to stand before the Father's throne. And so that's the issue there. Anyway, we can relax related to verse 3. We're not trying to insist upon a, uh, a very uh, urgent application. The author is trying to very quickly get past this to get into the real meat of, uh, of the questions. Verse 4. So behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies having a golden altar of incense. And that's a problem because the, it's not in the Holy of Holies. The altar of incense is in the holy place, not the Holy of Holies. So, but we need to relax because the author is not trying to be technically precise on all of this description having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant uh, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. All right, so here's the details here. The Holy of Holies is said here in this chapter to have the golden altar of incense, which strictly and technically speaking was placed outside the veil in the holy place. All right, and so uh, we just recognize it for what it is, and we're not we're not bothered by the the contradiction. We're not bothered by the uh, the inaccuracy. Okay, and if somebody wants to throw it out there and say uh, this is preventing them from believing what the Bible says because the Bible is full of contradictions, uh, it's just it's a fraudulent issue, and uh, and I think you're talking about somebody that's trying to find some reason to find the scriptures is unbelievable. The Holy of Holies is said here to have the golden altar of incense. Now, it is curious to me, though, that even though it is not in the Holy of Holies, it is right outside that, that, that uh, veil. It's right outside going in. And before the high priest can go into the veil, he's got to bring the right sacrifice to that altar. He's got to be bringing that sacrifice before that altar. That altar is inescapable just to pass through the veil to go inside. And so, really, having... Um, a golden altar of incense, uh, technically speaking, the Holy of Holies does have it. It just has it outside the veil as a requirement to enter within the veil and then to approach the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant after that. In any event, Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 37, verses 25 through 29. And when you read those passages and you get the information that's there as it pertains to this, uh, this altar 
uh, as it comes to what is the sweet-smelling savor, what it is and, and where uh, the offering is given and how the blood gets sprinkled on that offer and how the, the sweet-smelling savor goes forth when, the, uh, when the, uh, uh, the sacrifice is given there. And this is something that has, an, has a sacrifice every morning, every evening, and then annually speaking, it has the right kind of uh, sacrifice that's given before the high priest can enter within the veil. So this becomes important as well. And all of this is the Old Testament foreshadowing of what we have in Christ. All of this is where we have the foreshadowing in Israel, how they lived a life that is simply the anticipation of what you and I have today. What a glory that we have today, whereby it's not centered in ritual, it's actually centered in reality. And that we're able to function in our Christian walk as a sweet-smelling savor. That we have that... that uh, a blessing that we have today to be that aroma in this fallen world in which we live. And it's a sweet-smelling uh, savor in the eyes of God, even if it's, a, it's an aroma that stinks in the eyes of this fallen world, okay? Because there could be some unbelievers that aren't very comfortable with the, uh, with the aroma that we're giving off in our Christian walk. And they would much rather just dwell on the worldly stuff that they're accustomed to in the, in the world's way of thinking, saying. Something that we d- dealt with when we had our our Second Corinthians doctrine that we're teaching, teaching there. All right. Let me see how much of this I want to get into, into before we go to our time remaining. Exodus 30. Again, let me bring this up. Exodus 30. Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of, a pac- of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, its width a cubit, it shall be square, its height shall be two cubits, its horns shall be of one piece with it. All right, basically taking 18 inches, basically taking a, a foot and a half uh, for each cubit, and you have the, uh, the measurements there. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns, and you shall make it a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. You shall make them on its two side walls, on opposite sides, and they uh, shall be holders for the poles which, with which to carry it. Remember, everything here is portable. Everything here is designed to move on. And uh, there were some, some cases where they stopped for weeks or a month at a time. There were other cases they just stayed a day or two and then they moved on following the, the, uh, the, the, uh, either the fire by night or the cloud by day when they're following the Lord through the, uh, the time, the 20 years they spent in, uh, in the wilderness. Verse 6, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet with you. And so it's as close as you can get before you get to the mercy seat, before you get to the Ark of the Covenant. And so other than the high priest, this is as close as anyone can get. This is as close as a non-high priest can get. That uh, just your normal priest can go in there daily and they can, uh, they can minister and they can serve and they can, uh, they can fulfill their expectations for the candlestick or for the bread. Uh, they can come to the incense and they can offer incense. 
And that's as far as they can go, which is closer than the non-priest can go, which is closer than the Gentiles can go. And it's all about limited access, uh, minimal access to stand in the glory of God. What a difference between what you and I have in Christ. The fact that we can be in the Father's presence right here, right now, all of us together. Not just certain people, all of us. So we're learning in our Melchizedek priesthood is we all in Christ stand before the Father. We're all designed to stand before the Father. We have access that no Old Testament saint had. That's what we get into in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. And we see the privilege that we have in Christ. Now how we function in this priesthood here in Christ. All right, so... Um, there's more warnings about this though too. Uh, verse 8, Aaron shall burn fragrant, this is verse 7, Exodus 30 verse 7, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning uh, when he trims the lamps. When Aaron uh, trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. And twilight was important because they marked every day when the sun went down. They would mark a new day with the sun having gone down. And so they have evening and they have morning marking their days. He shall burn incense. There should be perpetual incense before the Lord through your generations. You shall not offer any strange incense on the fire. It's called strange fire. And if you bring the wrong sacrifice and if you, uh, if you violate the standards of how God designed it. Um, in fact, two of Aaron's sons actually died for bringing a, a, a wrong sacrifice, strange fire. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering. You shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is a most holy, it is most holy to the Lord. And so it's all about the standard that he designed. It's all about following the standard that he designed. And all of this is designed to point to Christ. And what we have in the church age is the fulfilled work of what Jesus Christ on the cross. All of that is fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the, is the fulfillment of all these types, all these shadows, all these anticipations. Jesus is the end of the, of the law for all who believe. All right. We won't turn there this morning, uh, but uh, chapter 37 also deals with this, verses 25 through 29. Here's the altar of incense. Good diagram for what it looks like. Made of acacia wood with pure gold overlay. 1.5 foot square, 3 feet high. So if you've got a yardstick at home or you've got a 1 foot uh, yardstick at home, uh, that gives you the idea of something that's 3 feet high. Fragrant incense was burned on the altar every morning and evening placed in the outer sanctuary in front of the mercy seat where the Lord met the high priest. Once a year, the high priest would make atonement for the, uh, for the altar by sprinkling some of the blood on the sin offering on the horns because the altar was most holy to the Lord. So that's the altar of incense. And I hope you recognize the idea of the altar of incense, the idea of having a ministry whereby in our priesthood, we are sacrificing something that's a sweet-smelling savor. Okay, that is, that is a joy. That is a privilege. That's far more than just being saved. That's far more than what's presented outside of the tabernacle, out in the, cold, uh, out in the courtyard. You know, far more than just killing an animal and, and recognizing that we're believers in Christ. 
the, the, the blessings we have to present this aroma is, uh, is really a privilege, really a delight. So we have the uh, altar of incense. And then we have the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, if you're a big fan of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> if you're, of all the movies and you're, you're a big fan of, of that, then uh, you've already seen this. But the Ark of the Covenant contained three items, manna, Aaron's rod, and then the tablets, uh, the broken tablets. That, uh, that Actually, not the broken tablets, but the new tablets that uh, Moses had to make to replace the broken tablets when he threw a temper tantrum and smashed the, uh, the tablets that God made. He had to make new tablets. And uh, those were the ones that were preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. All right. <clears throat> Why can't I remember the movie? Thank you. Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Han Solo. No, the actor. Harrison Ford. Thank you. <laughs> we were uh, looking at the stars on the, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame last week, and our first picture of the, of the Harrison Ford star was actually the wrong Harrison Ford. There are two different Harrison Fords on the Walk of Fame, one of whom was uh, in the 1930s, was, a, was an actor way back in the day, and then, uh, which was the first picture we took. And then we got to the, the more modern Harrison Ford and, and took the picture of that one too. So anyway, um, but here's the Ark of the Covenant, which is, by the way, lost, uh, which was not carried away to uh, Babylon uh, disappeared when uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed, when everything was taken away to Babylon. The ark disappeared at that point. And when they came back from Babylon, there was no more ark. They, they came back with everything else. They came back with everything else we've seen, but the ark is gone. What happened to it? Why is it gone? And which leads to a lot of rumors and a lot of other things. All right. And all kinds of crazy things too, by the way, but we'll let that go for this morning. The Ark of the Covenant contained three things. Manna, a pot of manna. And if you think about it, this was something he gave to his people every single day except on the Sabbath, but he would provide uh, manna every morning. And they took uh, a day's worth and they set it aside and they put it in a golden jar and they kept that as a display. And so... It's, uh, it's to be found there. If you want to look it up, you can read Exodus 16, and you can see it there in verses 32 through 34. Likewise, Arad's rod, the rod that budded. This was another rebellion. And uh, the rod that budded there in Numbers chapter 17, you can see how God uh, defended Aaron at that point when there was that rebellion going on against Arad. Arad. Uh, Numbers chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. And then the tablets of, uh, of the law, the two tablets for the Ten Commandments, uh, Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 through 5. And these two were placed in the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. These, pla- these things were kept inside the Ark. The Ark is essentially a box with the mercy seat that forms the lid, the lid of the box. And uh, the idea is that it's there, it's uh, available. If someone wants to uh, try to forge something, uh, well, good luck with that because the law is actually there in the tablets and, and available there to uh, consult if, in fact, someone's trying to to uh, claim something that's different from the text that they have available. All right, then real quickly, I'm running out of time here. Verse 5, cherubim of glory. I forgot to show this part. 
the Ark of the Covenant, made of acacia wood with pure gold overlay, four and a half feet long, 2.25 feet wide, 2.25 feet high. The Ark was a symbol of the presence and glory of God. Numbers 14, 43, that addresses that. The testimony of the Lord written on two stone tablets given to Moses on Mount Sinai were the only item inside, uh, these were the only items inside the Ark. Sometimes it's called the Ark of God, sometimes it's called the Ark of God's strength, the Ark of the Testimony. It's an Ark that is missing ever since, uh, ever since Jerusalem was destroyed, ever, ever since the city was destroyed and the captivity took place. You know, when Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was split in two, you know what happened? It was split in two and the, the curtain was split. It exposed an empty room. There was no Ark of the Covenant inside that empty room. And then they buried Jesus. And the, I think then the high priest and that fallen priesthood, I think they themselves got busy on that, on that uh, Sabbath day to reconstruct a new veil. That they spent that Saturday re-sowing that veil. And then denying the, the resurrection of Christ the day after that. All right. Verse 5 then. Cherubim of glory. Cherubim of glory overshadowed the ark even as Satan overshadowed, uh, overshadowed God's throne. And the recognition of this, there's a lot of doctrine that goes into this. Exodus 25, the idea that Cherubim form a protective guardianship in guarding the holiness of God. Why was it when Adam and Eve sinned and they were expelled from the Garden of Eden that it was a cherub that was placed there with the flaming sword that was keeping them from returning back to, um, to Eden, to the Garden of Eden? Why, uh, what's the function of angels in protecting the holiness of God? What was Satan's function before he fell? as described in Ezekiel 24, verse 14 and verse 16. We have uh, the role of cherub as the Messiah cherub, the, the anointed cherub who covers, and the role that he has there in that. I'm just running out of time as we deal with that. And then we get to the mercy seat, the helosterion, the mercy seat, called in uh, Greek helosterion, called in Hebrew kaporeth, Really, the hardest thing about mercy seat is the translation mercy seat. <laughs> and it really is. I mean, going back to the, to the King James, going back to the, to the 1600s, it's un, unfortunate because there's really nothing that links it with mercy. There's really nothing that, that uh, links it with a, a seat of any sort, a chair of any sort, a throne of any sort. Uh, really, it speaks of propitiation. It speaks of a satisfaction. It speaks of satisfying the Father. And so what the mercy seat is, the kaporeth, if you will, the kaporeth is simply the place of propitiation, the place of atonement, the idea of a cover. This is the place where sin is covered. So it's a golden lid which covered the open box of the ark. Helosterion is only used twice in the New Testament, and this is why. Somebody asked me this about a month ago. Why do I call Jesus Christ the mercy seat? Because Romans 3 calls Jesus Christ the mercy seat. Because it's the same noun. Romans 3.25, Jesus Christ was displayed publicly as a hilasterion, a mercy seat, propitiation. Romans 3.25. And I've got to close with this and, and go to our, uh, go to our uh, communion. Romans 
This is a noun that only shows up twice in the New Testament. Our text this morning in in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, and then this testimony of Jesus in Romans 3.25. Verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace which uh, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a helosterion. As a what? As a mercy seat. As a propitiation. As a helosterion. Because in the forbearance of God, this was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. So what in the tabernacle was called a mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, if you will, is the same noun for Jesus Christ as our propitiation. Jesus Christ was displayed publicly as a hilasterion, a mercy seat propitiation. And so there's our Ark of the Covenant. All right. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this study. And it is. Uh, there's a whole lot more we could spend on it. We could spend weeks and weeks on the tabernacle study and go into all of these areas. But the author of Hebrews doesn't want to do that. He wants to just get through it in verses 2 through 5 and then build on it. And uh, so we're going to do that ourselves, Father. We're going to move on. We're going to see the verses that follow. And I just thank you that we have in the church age, in the body of Christ, we have access to you, not to a replica, not to uh, an earthly form, but in the heaven itself, Father. We are a heavenly people. We are at your right hand, even as our, uh, your son is at your right hand. And so, Father, I pray that you open the eyes of our understanding, that we can operate in our priesthood in a manner that gives all glory to Jesus Christ. Father, make this truth available to us, that we can live it out in a way that pleases you, that, we, that our life becomes the sweet-smelling savor in, in every thought, in every word, in every deed on our part. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.